Uh, we're working our way through Matthew's gospel. Um, we're um, asking the question, what does Matthew's gospel reveal about the person of Jesus Christ? Um, we often think that we know who Jesus is. We often think that um, uh, we're very clear as to um, what he's like, who he is. But actually, as we read the gospels, those accounts of the life of Jesus we discover a Jesus sometimes that we weren't expecting, doing things that seem odd and strange to us, doing things that are quite challenging to us, sometimes doing things that are full of joy and um, surprise. And what we want to do is to hear clearly and see clearly who this person Jesus really was and who Christians claim he is today. So I'm going to read for you a little passage from Matthew chapter 21. It begins at verse 12 and it will go through to verse 23. And um, we're going to find Jesus... Uh, in the temple, the centerpiece, the beating heart of uh, religious life 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And we're going to see what it is that Jesus said and did and the very surprising way in which he made his point clear and see what it has to say to us um, and see what it has to say to us in the context of a day where we've seen Oaks baptized and where we've remembered perhaps our own baptism and following of Jesus. Listen to God's word. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never have fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt... Not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you yourself have experienced what it is to be a parent, or if you've simply watched little children growing up, maybe in your extended family, or maybe amongst your neighborhood, you'll have experienced probably something of that sense of looking at a tiny child and wondering what they will become. Uh, it's one of the, uh, the most effective bits of clickbait uh, on the internet at the moment, to say you'll never believe what such and such looks like today and it usually shows a child star from your childhood and the temptation is you hover to click knowing that they're 
suckering you into some sort of advertising or worse. Um, it, it's almost uh, irresistible because we do love to see what children are growing into, not just in terms of what they look like, but what they're going to be, what they're going to do, what will become of them, what will be the fruit, if you like, of their lives. There's something rather delicious, isn't there, about standing right at the beginning of a little life and just beginning to imagine ahead. And maybe as parents, maybe as an uncle or an aunt or a godparent, a grandparent, a friend, we know that with all our hearts, we, we long for a good life. We long for a long life. And we long for, you might use this language, a fruitful life. A life that means something, a life that does something, a life that affects other people for good, a life that makes the world a different place because that life was lived. It's what we all aspire to for ourselves, isn't it? It's one of the problems of middle age, which some of us might feel that we're tiptoeing into and around. That sense of, what if I am halfway through? What have I achieved? What have I done? What fruit has my life borne? Um, we were very fortunate when we moved into the house um, that is the vicarage uh, to find that we had a garden. Um, that's not to be sneezed at in London. Um, and to find that it was a walled garden and uh, therefore nice and warm in terms of plants that you could plant in there. And so we, we gave ourselves a bit of a present when we moved in and we bought, um, I think online they were delivered to us, a little set, a little trio of fruit trees. Um, I think I've got a little picture I just took this morning um, of them. I don't know whether it'll come up. Let's have a look. There you go. Um, there are, I promise you, three branches, three sort of um, trunks there. There's also a couple of um, sticks that are holding up a fence, so don't get confused by the number there. But anyway, um, we bought ourselves a little trio of tiny miniature, and deliberately miniature because it's a small garden, fruit trees. And there was, there's a plum um, on the left-hand side, and then a pear tree, and then an apple tree. And we bought them because, as a city boy myself, I quite like the idea of actually the novelty of growing something in my garden that I could eat. Um, Catherine, my wife, was somewhat less enamoured, having grown up in the countryside with a, a big sort of vegetable plot out the back that represented hard work. Um, I had this sort of dewy-eyed sort of idea. You just planted them, walked away, and then came back for fruit later on. Um, now, the thing is, we didn't really buy them for their looks, although they produced a lot of greenery, um, and some of, you know, they produced a little bit of blossom at the right point in the spring. We bought them because we actually fancied a bit of fruit from them. And at different times, they've produced a lot. I mean, last year, there were more pears than we could actually manage to eat, which was fantastic. The apple tree seems to be doing very well this year. I think I've got a picture. Is it the pear tree or the apple tree? There you go. Look, there's some apples getting ready. Give those a couple, two or three months, and they'll be ready to eat. Fantastic. But the plum tree, not so much. Here's the plum tree. I think we're there. Have we got one more, Paul? There we go. Um, Look in vain, and you're welcome to try. And I have looked. And plum trees are notorious because when they're starting off, the little plums are just the same colour as the leaves. So we might have missed one or two. But for the looks like for the fourth year in a row, it's producing absolutely no fruit at all. Actually, I tell a lie. Last year, it produced two plums, both of which got eaten by something before I got anywhere near them, which is a bit gutting. Now, if any of you are gardeners, tell me afterwards if you've got a clever route for sorting that out. I'll try anything. But I mean, of course, here's the point. It's all very well to say, well, that looks, and it is, a perfectly healthy tree. It's not got rust on its leaves. It's not covered in aphids. It's not falling apart. It's not about to keel over. It's not brown. It's just, it's a beautiful green-leafed tree. But as a plum tree, it's singularly useless. It's not producing any plums. It's a tree, fine. It's not really doing the job of a plum tree. 
And right at the heart of what goes on in this reading, both in terms of what Jesus is doing in the temple and of this slightly odd to our ears and sort of worked parable of the fig tree that he curses effectively, is this question of what is life and actually what is the life of God's people meant to be for? Is it for looks, for show, for greenery, if you like, or is it to bear fruit? And if it's to bear fruit, what does that fruit look like? Now, look, we ought, to, we ought to get the context of this back at the beginning of chapter 1, chapter 21. I mean, we've got Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. So this is the final week of Jesus' life. Um, if we were doing this at the right point in the church's year, this would be the day after Palm Sunday. Okay, so this is Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. He's arrived on the back of that donkey, and everybody's come out, and they're putting the, sort of waving the palm branches and throwing their cloaks down on the ground, and he's walking into Jerusalem or on the, you know, the donkey's walking into Jerusalem, he on its back, and everybody is cheering him, and they're going, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna simply means God to the rescue, God saves, God save us. What they were tapping into was a centuries-old longing, a centuries-old tradition, a centuries-old expectation that one day God would come to his people, Old Testament, ancient Israel, and he would come as king. Not just as a prophet to tell them where they were going wrong, not simply as a priest to help them remake relationship with God, but actually as a king to lead, they believed, God's armies, to kick out those who were um, invading their own country, to put their own king on their throne, and to once again be the people they were meant to be. It's the same longing that you see down through history for any people who have been invaded You'd have seen it in Second World War France as uh, village and towns were liberated from Nazi oppression. That sense of we're just longing for the day when we are set free. Well, on Palm Sunday, beginning of chapter 21, that was the expectation that was there. That fizzing excitement that this Jesus, maybe he was the one. Messiah, we use that word today, don't we? You know, that sort of Messiah figure. Messiah or the Christ, to give it sort of Greek and Latin terms, simply means the chosen one. The one who has been chosen by God to be the king. The one who's coming in, they weren't really expecting on the back of a donkey. That was a surprise. They were expecting you like a white charger, preferably with an army behind him. And he was going to come in, they hoped, and he was going to kick out the Romans. The Romans to them were their enemy. They'd marched into ancient Israel. They had basically imposed their laws, their ways of doing things, their emperor worship, their pagan ways. They had just about allowed the Jews to carve out a little space for the beginnings of their own worship. They let them have the temple. It was like a just the sort of faintly beating heart of what was left of their identity. Because they'd lost their king. It was now a puppet king, Herod who was not really a Jewish king at all. He was really there for the Romans. They'd lost any sense of the prophets because they tend to just get put to death. And all they had left was the temple. And the problem with the temple was that it had become such a symbol for them of that last little bit of power and agency, if you like, that they had, that there were at least some within the leadership of Old Testament Israel who had made it into, if you like, their little fiefdom, the temple uh, had been given as a gift. If you go right back to the beginning of uh, the Old Testament, you'll find that the temple is given as God's way of saying to his people, I'm with you. That's what it was. Uh, it was his way of saying to them, I'm not going to leave you. 
I'm not going to abandon you. Um, there's a wonderful story told. It's almost certainly apocryphal, but it's one of those ones I really hope is true. So let's assume it is for a moment. Um, there's a story told of um, a family who had bought one of these baby listeners, but one of the more modern ones, which enabled you to see um, your child, but also not just to hear them, but to talk to them. Um, now, that's always slightly scared me as to how that would work. Um, I, we, I'd never tried it. But the story goes that uh, um, uh, uh, parents bought this for their child, and the child was in their cot, um, old enough to talk, um, standing up, sort of screaming blue murder, holding onto the side of the cot. And um, the, the parents thought, well, we'll just calm them down. We're not going to go up. And they said, hello. And the child stops. Hello, you okay? Don't worry, go back to sleep now. And the little child goes, hello, wall? That sense of, you know, being with and yet not really being with. This was the tension that they lived with. The temple was to represent for them God being with them. But they had ended up with a pattern of worship that more and more ended up with God at arm's reach. Fewer and fewer of them were allowed and able to engage with God. The system of sacrifices, which had been given to them simply as a visual aid to remind them, they couldn't just waltz into God's presence going, hey, look at me, I'm great, I am. They actually had to go into God with empty hands and say, I've got nothing to offer you but my whole life. So they sacrificed the best that they had, uh, uh, the firstborn from amongst their sheep or goat flock, uh, a, a beautiful sort of calf or maybe a sheaf of corn from their crops as representing the whole of their life given for God. And it was meant to draw them into God's presence. But actually what it did was that they ended up further and further away because all the trappings of religion became more and more involved. The temple was given as a gift to remind them of God's presence, that God was for them, not against them, that God would never leave them. And it had become more and more these two things. One is a place of distance, but also a power base for those who had religious power. And one of the bits of power they'd put into place, which to our ears sounds entirely shocking, is that by the time of Jesus' day, it sounds as though they wouldn't let anybody into the temple courts who was in, in any way, in their sense, um, imperfect. I don't know whether you noticed that in, this, uh, in the passage we hear that um, they, the blind and the lame came to Jesus, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. To our ears, it's just, well, of course they'd come to Jesus. He was going around healing people. He was coming around loving people. Actually, in those days, that was highly controversial because there was a tradition that went right the way back to when Jerusalem itself was first captured by the Israelites, where they'd been taunted by their enemies. And back in 2 Samuel, their enemies had said to King David, do you know, it's so easy to keep you out of Jerusalem. We're going to put our blind and our lame on the walls and you still won't be able to get in. And from that day onwards, it had become a tradition that they wouldn't allow the blind and the lame into the temple courts. Now, actually, everything we know about God, everything that we read in Scripture, shows us that was an offence against God, who made everybody, who cares for everybody without exception, without differentiation. So even in this seemingly uncontroversial moment, Jesus was doing something really very controversial. But then we also read that he goes in and he overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. In other words, all the trappings of religion. He goes in and he just causes chaos. 
And he points back to somebody who lived hundreds of years before him, the prophet Jeremiah. And he quotes him saying, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jeremiah chapter 7. And what Jeremiah is talking about is of this gap that had developed between God's people going through the religious motions, if you like, the beautiful green-looking tree of religion, but its lack of spiritual life-giving fruit. All the trappings of religion were there, but what wasn't there was engagement with God, was friendship with God, was being filled and sent out by God, was the fruit of lives lived for him. And that is, I think, a little bit to do with what happens in verse 16 and 17. As these children come gathering around, around Jesus, children, again, had no place in the sacrificial life of the temple. They hadn't managed to work their way up the sort of adult hierarchy. They certainly weren't important enough to be gathered by the rabbis and taught, especially. They couldn't take um, sacrifices in to make themselves clean. It had to be done for them. And yet Jesus welcomes them in, and they are the ones, not the adults, they are the ones, not the religious leaders, they are the ones, not the hierarchy, to say of Jesus, you are God's anointed, you are God's king, you are God's Messiah. In other words, the fruit that was being born wasn't necessarily on the bits of the tree you would expect. Because the fruit of a life well lived isn't born in your life or my life, because we're religious, because we do stuff right. The fruit of a life well lived is born in us simply out of connection with, relationship with, friendship with God. It's what the temple was meant to represent. It's what the temple was meant to offer. But people had turned their backs and turned it into a religious set of instructions that had lost its heart. So Jesus illustrates it with this worked out, quite shocking parable, seeing a fig tree. Now, that time of year, we know it was March or April time. At that time of year in that part of the world, um, there would be fig trees with those little green figs on, just the beginnings. Um, our, both our next door neighbours at different times have had fig trees and, and um, at different times have over, overhung our wall. And it's a good moment of the year when you see that it's got some green figs on and you hope it's going to be the right sort of year for just a few figs to fall the right side of the of the wall i love figs and um, jesus goes to this fig tree and maybe he is hungry maybe he's simply looking for a good memorable illustration but he goes across to it and it is maybe covered in green leaves just like our plum tree but it has not a single baby fruit on and it, what you know is that if in march or april your fig tree has no baby figs on it is guaranteed not to suddenly sprout any later on so he says you know you're cursed. In other words, you have no future. May you never bear fruit again. Because it's not just about looks. It's not about an outward manifestation. It's not about all the greenery. It's about bearing fruit. This slightly odd language about prayer and about faith both addresses the question that the disciples ask him, which is simply, how on earth did you do that, Jesus? One of the things I love about the Gospels is there are quite a few places where Jesus does unexpected things. He heals people. He even raises people from the dead. This is God come as a human being. This stuff, you know, although it's mind-boggling, on logical terms, shouldn't shock us. If God is real, if God is really there, if God really made you and really made me, it's not much of a stretch to imagine that God can do those things. But when his disciples sort of press Jesus 
for how on earth did you do it? He doesn't go, right, let me teach you how it's done. He simply says, well, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. You're sort of focusing on the wrong stuff. This is just about prayer, about relationship with God. This is about bearing fruit that comes out of your relationship with the one who made you and loves you. And then this odd um, stuff about a mountain. You can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the, the sea. Uh, that isn't simply about God sort of thinking to himself, gosh, what's the biggest thing I can imagine asking in prayer? I know, throwing a mountain. Actually, it also refers back to another prophet. It takes them back into Zechariah chapter 4, where there is talk of the obstacles that get in the way of rebuilding the temple. And what he's saying to them is, actually, we need to start again. We need to rebuild that sense of God with us right in the heart of our lives. And nothing is going to get in God's way when you're in a relationship with me. I wonder whether your life, my life, I wonder whether the life of all souls, because this applies to us as individuals, as families, and actually as church communities. I wonder whether our life or lives are more like my plum tree or more like a fig tree laden with potential fruit. Both, from a distance, can look wonderful. Both can be covered in green leaves. Both can look incredibly healthy. Both can sort of make you go, that's great. I don't have to worry about that. We're sorted. But go a bit closer. Go looking for the fruit that changes lives. Go looking for fruit that means that the hungry are fed. Go looking for fruit that means that those who have no hope discover in Jesus the hope that transforms life. Go looking for fruit that puts families back together, that knits communities together, that makes a difference to individuals, to households, to communities, to countries. Go looking for that fruit. And if you don't see it there... The good news is that Jesus doesn't curse you like a fig tree. What he does do is say, allow me to fill your life with life. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, if you abide in me, if you stay connected with me, you will bear much fruit. It's never too late. It's never too late to connect with Jesus the one who made you, the one who knows you, the one who loves you, and to have a life that bears fruit. It's what we're praying for Oaks today. We haven't simply done a sort of religious naming ceremony for him. We've said of him, hey, Oaks, you're loved. Hey, Oaks, you have the love of God set upon you. Your life is meant to bear fruit. God's promise never to leave you. God's promise never to abandon you. God's promise to fill you with himself. So stay connected with him. Enjoy what God will bear in your life. And as we've watched him being baptised, we can remember our own baptisms, that that's God's intention for us. And we can look at our church, or maybe another church that you belong to, and we can say, is this group of God's people bearing fruit, not just simply looking good, but bearing fruit that will change lives and that will last? Let's pray together as we finish. Jesus, thank you for that memorable set of incidents. Thank you that you weren't content to simply say polite things in polite ways in polite places, but you were determined to overturn expectations, to stir things up, to provoke thought and engagement with you. 
And I simply want to pray for all of us today that you would provoke our engagement with you today and every day. We don't want to go through life and look back on a life that is full of green leaves, but that lacks fruit. So as we've prayed for Oaks, so we pray for ourselves, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, the one who gives life, and that you would bear in us fruit that transforms the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen.